Welcome everyone to the Law and Society podcast, brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. The City Law School's Law and Society podcast is co-hosted by me, Dr. Sabrina Germain, Senior Lecturer at the City Law School, and me, Dr. Adrienne Young, also Senior Lecturer at the City Law School. Each episode, we will be interviewing a guest to speak about their expertise on issues relating to the law, the rights stemming from the law, and most importantly, how context matters to all this. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the City Law School's Law and Society podcast with me, Dr. Sabrina Germain. And me, Dr. Adrienne Young. Welcome to Episode 3 on International Law in Context, Statelessness and Nationality, with our very own City Law School, Shad Kwanam. Hello, Shad. Uh, It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Shad, I think that all of our listeners will be very interested to hear a little bit about you. So if you didn't mind, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, of course. So as you mentioned, my name is Shad and I was born and raised in Jerusalem, Palestine. I come from a family of political refugees. So um, my grandparents were displaced in 1948 and that's how my interest in refugee studies and statelessness started. Growing up in a challenging human rights context, I have to say, made me realize how complicated law is and how important the human rights are. So that drove me to study law, international law and human rights. I'm currently focusing on international statelessness law on my PhD, and I previously completed my master's in refugee studies from the University of Oxford. Wonderful and fantastic to have you. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. We start off all of our episode by asking our guest a very big question. So um, I want to ask you, Shad, how would you define the concept of law? What a fun question. So I always think of that, to be honest, and I don't think there is a right or wrong answer to the concept of law. But generally, I look at law as um, interdisciplinary. So it has like a cultural aspect and then it has another aspect of social organization that it's a system of rules and policies that usually governments adopt to regulate the actions of its members. And since we live in a nation state system, then law is a very important element in order to um, regulate and promote for concepts that may not be um, legal, inherently legal, such as like fairness, democracy, um, justice, uh, equality, all of these forms. So I think law um, seeks to clarify a certain moral theory or system of ethics within um, our societies and members of the society in general um, in order to better understand how the world around us works. However, it doesn't mean that law is an easygoing thing or it's not and we and we we don't live in an ideal world anyway. So law could be used as a tool to manipulate people and to divide people. So usually governments when they use law, they politically play with it and they weaponize it to their own advantage. So yes, it's very important to understand that law motivates legal intervention in regulating social relationships, but it's also um, a tool that could be used and weaponized against people themselves. 
How interesting. I think that's a very unique take on the law to see kind of both of its sides. And I know that our students will have a lot to think about in that in that sense. Um, so how about we now kick off with the uh, topic of the podcast, now that we know what your view of law is, um, your area of expertise. And we would like you to give us the basics of international law in context that we'll be exploring today. So could you tell us what is involved in the definition of nationality under international law. Uh, why should we care about context in this? Okay, so let me start with the first half of the question, which is what involves or, or what's the definition of nationality and the right to nationality under international law? And then we move to why should we care? For the right to nationality, as simple as it is, to me, it's a sense of belonging to a um, political entity, which we refer to as a state today. But the right to nationality is still vaguely defined under international law. So international law leaves it entirely to domestic law and governments to define their own nationality laws. So yes, international law protects the right to nationality, and it says that everyone has the right to nationality. Different conventions and different um, international treaties protect the right to nationality, yet there is no um, coherent definition in international law of the right to nationality. So as I mentioned, generally speaking, nationality is a legal bond between um, nationals and the states of nationality, and um, it's a legal relationship between both the states and nationals that has or identifies the rights and duties on both sides of this of that relationship. So nationals do have rights and duties, and so does the state. We usually look at the right to nationality or this legal bond only as rights, but then it's very important to also note that it, it, it includes both rights and duties. So it's not only about rights, um, it's about duties as well. So as a national, I don't only have the right to vote or have the right to... Um, or property, or education, healthcare, all of these rights that we will talk later about. But we also have a duties and responsibilities towards the state, such as um, not committing a serious crime against the state, um, being a good citizen, whatever that means, um, paying taxes, all of these things come with the right to nationality. And um, usually the right to nationality is decided by the state. So um, states decide their own nationality laws. And here comes the other aspect of law, as I mentioned earlier, is that some states use nationality laws to discriminate against certain groups and certain ethnic groups within their communities. So they include and exclude um, whoever they think is eligible to ac acquire or obtain their citizenship and whoever is not. So they do have some power to revoke nationality of certain groups depending on their political agenda and political motives within that state. So in simple words, I see nationality as a form of membership or social attachment or a legal belonging um, in a certain political entity and that political entity we usually refer to it as a state so that's how national it is building up on that is just to clarify i mean um, i think it's pretty clear um, and i like the, the the definition of a membership but um i wondered basically it, it is kind of an a la carte concept um you could say um i want you to be part of my club so um, I will put um, certain um, elements or criteria. We can imagine a fictional state where they say, um, I'd like all blonde people um, to be nationals and all people with brown hair not to be nationals, right? It's a very discretionary rule or it's, it's a little bit more elaborate than this. 
or do they really have the power? States have really the power to put any criteria that they want to include as national or exclude nationals? Well, in theory, we say that no, they don't have the absolute power because there are um, certain international law policies and rules and norms that the state has to follow. Like they must follow this so they can't just overnight to change their nationality laws and decide to revoke nationality of all um, people of color, for example, who live in a white dominant um, state. So um, in theory, no, they don't. But in practice, um, yes, they do, sadly. So in practice, they do have certain laws that could be interpreted in a way that discriminate against certain ethnic groups or minorities within the state itself, which imply that they put more challenges to these ethnic groups and they place them in a very critical position, legally speaking, in terms of accessing rights and duties, whether internally or externally, like on the international level. In theory, no, but in practice, yes, they do do that. So now if we move to the second half of the question, why to care or why should we care about the right to nationality? Basically, the right to nationality has a very, very important role in our lives because it gives us access to other um, human rights. And it's the gateway to enjoy other um, or a series of rights such as social rights, political rights, economic, cultural rights, everything, literally. So if you have the right to nationality, or if you're a national in a certain state, then you get to enjoy different sets of rights. If you're not a national in that state, then you're in a very critical position under international law and domestic law as well, and you don't get to enjoy your rights as a human being. So sadly, to enjoy your rights as a human being, you have to be a national in a certain state. And as I said, it doesn't only affect your status internally um, under domestic law, but it also under um, under international law, it affects you. So if you're a national of a certain state, let's say British citizen. So if you're a British citizen traveling abroad and you face a certain challenge or like a problem, legal problem especially, then you're entitled to diplomatic protection. So the United Kingdom is obligated to defend you and protect you while you're abroad because you're a citizen in the kingdom. So if you're not a citizen, you're not entitled to that, which entails different challenges and then brings different problems to your lives, basically as simple as we can say it. So in simple words, the right to nationality, it's the right to have rights. A very familiar mantra from a very famous theorist, I believe. Is that right, Shad? Yeah, Hannah Arendt. Well, that's great. So now we understand very clearly what nationality is or uh, what it cannot be uh, in a way. So because you've defined it so brilliantly, but would you tell us how do we acquire it? Firstly, some people think it's just by birth, but I think it's a little bit more complex with that. So how, how does one get nationality? Okay, so there are three different principles to get a nationality in a certain state. So first, either by birth, if a child or like anyone who's born in a certain country and that state applies the birth principle, then they get the citizenship such as the United States of America. So if a child is born in the States, it doesn't matter whether their parents are nationals or not, they automatically get the American citizenship. Um, And then the other one is by parental descent. So if the parents or the father especially is a citizen in that country, then they pass their nationality to their kids. Um, France is a very good example. So a French national can pass their citizenship to their kids. And then the third one is by naturalization. So if I live in a certain country for a certain period of time, 
then I may be eligible to apply for the citizenship if I fit the um, requirements, if I meet the requirements. So um, usually nationality, um, is the state defines their nationality laws and then they set the requirements for naturalization. Well, that's very interesting, but I'm thinking about my, my own case, um, just to complicate things further for you. So I'm Canadian, um, and I acquired my nationality through my parents. Both of my parents are Canadian. My father moved to the United States for work, and I also acquired his nationality as an American. Uh, and now I have two daughters, um, and one of them was born in Canada uh, and was Canadian, obviously, as you said, um, I guess by birth. But I also have uh, my youngest daughter that um, was born in London. Would you be able to explain to our listeners why my second daughter um, has not acquired the British nationality and how, uh, potentially, because now we have our ILR indeterminate leave to remain, uh, we will be uh, able to get naturalized. Would you be able to explain that a little bit further? Because um, it kind of combines all the status that you've mentioned just now. So starting with Canada, if a child is born there, then they are eligible to get the citizenship just by birth because they were born there. And then immigration to the U.S., they met the requirements for naturalization in the U.S., and then they got the citizenship there. Moving to the U.K., which has a different nationality um, system and nationality laws. So it doesn't matter if you're born in the U.K., you won't get the citizenship unless the parents have the citizenship of the UK. So once the parent, one of the parents, it doesn't have to be both parents. So if one of the parents has the citizenship in the UK, then um, they're eligible to pass it to their children. For naturalization in the UK, there are different routes that you can take. It might take five years, 10 years, sometimes 15 years. So each case is different, and uh, depending on that, parents pass on their citizenship, the UK citizen, the British citizenship to their kids. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's correct. I guess that's our case. So my first daughter is Canadian uh, by birth, uh, being born in Montreal, but my second daughter is also Canadian um, through us. Although she's born in London, she has a Canadian passport from from the High Commission. So um, that's quite interesting. And my husband's Russian to complicate things further. So he will get his British nationality very soon. He's the first one in the family through naturalization. So a whole international happy family that's very lucky to have all those nationalities, I guess. And this is a very, very important point that I would like to make is that people usually look, or today at least, we look at nationality as a privilege, but it's very important to understand that it's a right, not a privilege, because yes, sadly, within the nation state system, we usually treat nationality as a privilege, because for me, for example, I am stateless myself, so I hold travel documents and I don't hold like a nationality in any state. So I go through like a whole hectic process of applying to visa to come to the UK. I had to wait for like two months to get my visa, although I'm a student and I have all the legal papers to do that. So it's very complicated. Yet a British citizen can just like book their ticket overnight to travel, go wherever they want without getting worried about their visa getting rejected or um, not being able to return to their homeland or these things. So it's very important to emphasize here that the that nationality should be understood as a right and not as a privilege. I think that's so interesting. And it also then reminds me of 
my situation, which we're all talking about here today, which is fantastic, um, in that I also came to the UK as a student myself um, some number of years ago, and also remember thinking I had to go through such a difficult process to get a visa, to stay, to find a job after my my degrees. Um, and if you were British, it was not a problem. And even as well back then, if you were European, you had less problems because there was a lot more free movement and a lot easier rules to satisfy. And of course, that's all gone now because of um, Brexit. And I think that that's something that is really highlighting these issues of the fact that nationality, citizenship should be really thought of as something we just deserve, exactly as you say, Shad. I think there's a a very interesting conversation and point that you're triggering, especially because of my comments and Adrian's comments. And you're absolutely right. It, it, it is a right. It should not be a privilege. And um, there's almost a kind of a mercantile exchange of nationalities. I mean, I can think of some friends even um, from Russia going to give birth in the United States to to acquire one more citizenship as if you can just acquire them by buying them, literally, uh, which highlights the inequality underlying this aspect of national and international law, that it really um, digs further some inequalities, socially speaking, be- between people that can afford to, to to birth their children, literally, and and buy into a nationality, and people that are stateless, and like you say, only hold travel documents and going through all these ordeals. So digging further social inequalities through these specific laws of immigration. And this exactly takes us back to the point that law could be used as a weapon against people because this is how it works, basically. Yes, we see law as our um, escape or like heaven, that this thing will help me and this thing will bring me justice. But at the same time, in practice, we can see how states use all of these different laws to not just manipulate people, but exclude people and create this image of the other. If you're not a citizen, then you don't belong, then you're the other, then you're a threat to us and you shouldn't be here. So that's a very valid point that you made, Sabrina, here. I think that this is going to trigger a lot of emotions and a lot of um, discussion with all our listeners. So thank you so much, Shad, for for explaining all of this. So as I understand it, the nationality laws of each member state determine whether the state applies those different areas of how you get citizenship. Is that correct? And so can you just uh, clarify just for for our our listeners, um, those three areas, there's Latin names for them, I think. Yeah, so the Yosoli, which means by birth, and then Yosangriases, which means by parental descent, and then naturalization. Yes, I think it's Yosoli, which is like the ground, and then Sanguinis, which is about blood, and then, you know, naturalization. So that's great. Just to be very clear about that, everybody is aware of these different terminologies. So now that we have all of this nice and clear, more importantly, we're interested in is your research in particular. So especially to your research. Now we know how nationality is acquired. In contrast, how, if at all, can nationality actually be lost? Yes, sadly, nationality can be lost. So even when you get your nationality, that doesn't mean that you're you're safe now and you can never lose it. So nationality could be lost in different ways, actually. They could be voluntarily and involuntarily. And I will start first by these two, and then I'll move on to my research if possible. So um, voluntarily could be by acquisition of another nationality. So for example, certain countries and states don't allow dual nationality. So if you get a nationality in another country, then you automatically lose your nationality in one country. And then um, involuntarily could be 
denaturalization. So if you were naturalized in a certain country and then um, you commit a serious crime against the state or the state, it might not be a crime, but the state defines it as a crime, then they revoke your nationality. If you serve in a foreign military that also is a possibility where you lose your nationality. And very interesting case is the case of Shamima Begum, who lost her nationality, UK, British nationality. So basically, she was born to immigrant parents in the UK. And at the age of 15, she was recruited to join the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant in Syria. So she was underage. She was a child at the time that she left the UK. She went, she um, joined ISIS. And then at the age of 19, when she decided to return to the UK, the Supreme Court in the UK revoked her nationality, saying that she committed a serious crime against the, the state. And then she's no longer eligible to be a British citizen. So they revoked her nationality and she became stateless, basically. And the argument that the UK government at the time made is that she's eligible to claim nationality in Bangladesh, where her parents came from originally. But then the government in Bangladesh said she's not because their nationality laws indicate that she's not eligible for their nationality. So Shamima is left stateless now. And to challenge the Supreme Court um, decision in the UK, you have to be in the UK and they're not letting her back in the UK to even challenge the decision. So she's left stateless now. And I believe she's still in Syria now, so she can't return. So that's the involuntary way of losing your nationality. This is a really high profile case, which I'm sure a lot of people have actually heard about. And it also ties in really well to um, a political discussion happening in this day and age about uh, the UK government wanting to introduce a provision in a bill about the deprivation of citizenship, saying that they can revoke your citizenship for various reasons. And it all kind of harks back to Shamima Begum. So that's a really good example. I think there were like a lot of human rights organization even discussing that and talking about it because she was a child, so she's not um, mature enough to make decisions. So how can we even judge her decision as a child and revoke that citizenship? And then this is a questionable um, matter because what if she was not a child of immigrants in the UK? Would she face the same consequences or would she be put in the same position? They could have just put her in prison, for example, instead of revoking her nationality and leaving her stateless. So that's a political discussion that has been going for years now. And let's see how it ends. So now I'm going to my um, research. So basically, I focus on the right to nationality in states that are unrecognized under international law. So I look at for an entity to be recognized as a state under international law, it has to meet certain requirements. So I look at the citizens of states that are unrecognized and they're unrecognized due to like secession or succession. So there is a transformation of territory. So it's a state breakup or dissolution of states and so on. That's very interesting, Shad. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about uh, which uh, states or unrecognized states you're looking at uh, in your research and um, provide us with a little bit of, of background um, for those of us like me that are not uh, experts at international law and these questions, which are fascinating, really? 
Thank you. So basically, as I mentioned earlier, for um, someone to be considered as a national, there has to be a legal bond between the state and the national or the individual. But if the state to international law is in gray area, which means if the state itself is unrecognized, then there is like a big question mark, where do citizens of these states um, stand? So um, I'm looking at de jure stateless people and de facto stateless people at the same time, which we will also discuss in a bit. But um, I'm hoping to focus on the case of Abkhazia and Georgia, Eastern Europe, and then Palestine as well, because it combines different cases and different forms of statelessness. And this is mainly due to secession, which is incomplete secession, but then some could say succession and some could say colonization. So it combines different frames. Fantastic. Fascinating. We're really much looking forward to read that dissertation for sure. Now, linking to all of this, how does one become um, stateless? What is statelessness? Um, you've touched upon it, but could you could you clarify this further for us? Yeah. So in very simple words, statelessness is the lack of nationality. So if there is nationality, then you're a citizen. If there is no nationality, then you're a stateless person. And then legally speaking, as per the um, Convention on Statelessness, it's a stateless person is someone who is not considered as a national by any state under the operation of its law. And there are three main words that we should tackle into this in this definition, which is the national, the state, and the operation of its law. So the law is what defines who is a national or who is eligible to be a national and who is not. And then the state has to be a legal person under international law. So it has to be, have a legal personality under international law in order to be recognized as a state in the first place. So stateless people basically or stateless populations, they don't belong or they're not recognized as nationals by any state around the world. And they might be living in their home countries and still be recognized as a stateless. And that's mainly due to political reasons. It could be legal, but then politics complicate things even more in that sense. And also stateless populations, they're unable to exercise their duties or enjoy their rights like any other national in the country. So they're not able to um, move freely around the world or even in the country itself, in the same country that they're living in. They don't have access to healthcare or the right to education or diplomatic protection if they're abroad or to on property. If they want to buy a house, for example, they might face different challenges to do that. Um, they face also challenges in registering their children. So new births, um, that's also a very long process for them. They might not be able to do it at all. So stateless people do face different challenges and they're vulnerable to different human rights discriminations as well. And it's very important to here note that there are two different types of stateless people, the DUE stateless and de facto stateless. So the stateless that are by law stateless, so they don't have a nationality in any country. They're unable to acquire a nationality in any country. And then de facto stateless, it's not protected under international law, and there is a huge debate around it until now. But basically, de facto stateless people are the ones who do have nationality, but their state is unable or unwilling to protect them, such as refugees, for example. So... What I understand about all of this, which is actually kind of concerning, is that we have nationals. Nationals um, have the full rights of nationality, full citizenship rights. 
Then you have migrants, immigrants like ourselves, who have moved to a different country, and arguably we are second tier. So not the same as a national because we're not from that country. And then what you're saying is that there's an even lower hierarchy in this system of people who are stateless. So it's already difficult for an immigrant to uh, get the same kind of healthcare, let's say education, equal opportunities, etc. Yet, if you're stateless, it's even worse. And that seems to be a hierarchy. Would you say that it is like a hierarchy in that way? Is that is that an accurate way to describe it? I I think this is a, a very good way to put it, Adrian, because, um, yes, sadly, there are like citizens and then even citizens themselves, they could be like first class citizen, second class citizen, depending on like how you acquire that citizenship. And then you have the status people who are invisible technically um, in international law and not just, inter- no, not sorry, not international law, but domestic law. Um, the state, they don't even um, consider them as a human beings and they're totally neglected within the state. So um, I think this is a a fair way to put it, yeah, sadly. (laughs) Very sadly, indeed. So given how terrible this whole situation appears to be, and you know, you you describe yourself as, um, you identify yourself as being also stateless, can you say that statelessness um, is able to be avoided, especially understanding how nationality, nationality can be acquired and lost? I I believe statelessness could be avoided, yes, and um, it could be done through different ways, obviously, but then we have to have a very clear international system that puts laws and um, implement these laws, not just like define the laws, but implement them um, to make sure that no one is left stateless. So they um, limit the power of states in determining their nationality laws and how they revoke um, citizenship and nationality. First, I believe also one of the ways that we could avoid statelessness is by having a clear statelessness determination procedures, because now each state has its different procedure to determine who's stateless and who's not. Although international law has its own norms um, in defining statelessness, but the states still until today determine statelessness depending on their own political motives. So it's very important to have one clear determination process in understanding who is stateless and who is not. Another way could be to make the process of naturalization easier for stateless people instead of complicating it, because the cost that also um, usually stateless people have to pay for lawyers or court or consultations or all of these things is like crazy. So it could be better and not better. It would be amazing and a clear way to avoid the statelessness to ease in the process of naturalization. And then the other way that I could think of is to stop all forms of discrimination against the stateless people and to eliminate all the undue administrative and legal obstacles that prevent stateless persons from acquiring nationality and get their um, identity documents in these countries. But I believe the real question that we should ask is whether states are interested in avoiding statelessness or not, if they're actually willing to put an end to this phenomenon or not. Following up on that, I have a question for you that's very political, very controversial, um, and very right-wing in its angle. Uh, I'm warning the listeners, this is, again, not a take that I'm taking, but I could imagine arguments being made out there that some people would take advantage of that statelessness status to acquire nationality. Um, because um, if we would to put an end to it, um, they would have to be attached to a country. So could we imagine, for example, some people um, 
not um, liking the rights or 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 um, the limitations due to their nationality. I can I think it can think for example of people from certain countries that require visa um, to visit other countries and say, well, I'll um, identify or I'll put myself forward as a refugee, uh, renounce my nationality, and then because I won't be able to become stateless anymore because we won't have this anymore, um, I would acquire whatever nationalities I, I end up to immigrate to the country. Um, let's say I, I immigrate to the United Kingdom and then. And I acquired that nationality. So would there be an argument here from people um, that are very anti-immigration uh, saying, if we abolish that concept of statelessness and, and if we find a remedy, this is a floodgate to Im unwanted immigration? Do you think, is there such a rhetoric or it, it's a little bit more nuanced than this? I think, I think, Sabrina, that's a very valid point. So thank you for making it. But um, it's easier said than done. So it's easier to, it's very easy to say, oh, I'm stateless, but it's very hard to prove that you're stateless. And here comes the concept of determining the procedure of statelessness and like who is a stateless and who is not. So that's why we should have certain rules and certain laws that are agreed on globally, who is a stateless and what is a statelessness. But then I think it's not only about immigration. And that's why I say are states interest, interested sorry, in eliminating a statelessness or not, because we should treat the roots of the issue itself rather than the consequences of it. So we should look what causes statelessness in the first place and then we think of the consequences. So immigration and seeking asylum in like certain countries, that's only a consequence and a result of a statelessness. But we should look at the causes of a statelessness in the first place and to treat these issues and then discuss other related things. Very interesting. Absolutely. So do you think that's why states and government authority try to avoid state statelessness at all costs? Is that one of the reasons or is it there's something else underlying this dynamic? It might be, but I think we all should avoid the statelessness because first, nationality is a right, as I said, and everyone has the right to nationality. So regardless of your ethnic background or religious background or political background, you still are a human being and you still are eligible to be a citizen in a state that you identify with and you see you're socially attached to it and you have like a special bond with that state. So you do have the right to become a citizen in that state. And um, I also believe that we should avoid statelessness because it, it does affect international peace and security at the end of the day because stateless persons are subject to discrimination, harassment, other serious human rights violations, including um, human trafficking. So yes, governments should actively work, I think, and not just to try to avoid statelessness um, because every human being has um, the right to live in dignity and they have the right to have a free life, basically. I think that's a really, really good point and very compelling argument, given that we talked about that hierarchy of, you know, citizen, then immigrant, and then at the very bottom, statelessness. So why shouldn't we avoid statelessness? And this brings us to the very, very important question of what is meant by the deprivation of nationality. So how does the deprivation of nationality relate to statelessness? So deprivation of nationality in most of cases lead to statelessness um, because if you're not a national in another country and then your only nationality in 
the state that you were deprived from its nationality, then you are stateless now. So basically, deprivation of nationality is an involuntary loss, involuntary loss of your nationality, basically cuts the bond or breaks the legal bond between the individual and the state. And um, it takes away all of your rights as a citizen. Um, and you're no longer entitled to enjoy the rights that you used to as a citizen. And um, deprivation of nationality basically leads to statelessness because in most of the cases, those who lose their nationalities, they're not nationals in any other state. So if, um, again, to the case of Shamima, for example, she was only national in the UK and then she was deprived of her nationality. So now she's stateless. And in most of the cases, um, states deprive nationals of their nationality as a form of punishment. And that punishment could be for committing a serious crime against the state or they think they are a threat to the security and peace of that state. So that's how they deprive their nationality to punish them. I think that it sounds a little bit like they really treat citizenship and nationality like it's a privilege, as you say, if it's a punishment to take it away from them. What would you think about that, Shad? Um, yes, I do. I do think that states currently look at nationality as a privilege rather than as a right, because sadly, usually the way I think of governments and states is that there are public servants. So we are the ones who vote to get them in office. But then once they're in office, they start um, looking down at us and treating us as less human. And just because there are the ones in power, but we are the ones who put them in power. And that's very important when we talk about law as well, because I think we as humans are the ones who put the law at the end of the day, and everyone has their own biases. So when I come from a certain political background, and I believe that a certain community shouldn't be included in my community or in my society, then I will do everything in my power to exclude them. And then how can I do this? Through law. I put certain laws, I vote on them, and then I exclude this population because I don't feel, I don't believe that they have the right to belong. And this is what makes nationality a privilege rather than a right, because currently we use law as a weapon against people to identify who is the insider and who is the outsider. And we create this image of the other that we usually spread and brainwash people with, because this is the easy way to control your nationals, basically. This is such an enlightening way uh, and a critical way, I think, of, of looking at this question. And I, I thank you really much for bringing all of this to the table. So in your opinion, um, is the deprivation of nationality used as a national security measure? I think I, I, I can guess what you will answer to that. But is the result of statelessness something arbitrary? So if you can just unpack that a little bit for us further, we, it's very interesting to hear about this. So first, let's think, what is national security? Um, I think national security is basically the security of the na of a nation state, um, including its citizens, and um, is perceived as a duty of the government. Because as I mentioned earlier, um, the government has certain um, duties and responsibilities towards its citizens, one of which is to protect their national security. So in general, international law prohibits the deprivation of nationality on arbitrary ways, and especially when it leads to statelessness. So yes, national security is being used as a weapon or as a tool to provoke nationality of people. And there is actually a growing trend in which states deprive or threaten to deprive their um, citizens of nationality under the claim to protect nationality 
national security. They also may provoke the nationality of anyone who opposes their politics because they can easily manipulate the idea of national security and use it as a tool to um, just deprive anyone of their um, nationality if they disagree with them on certain um, issues within the state. So I think states have the duty the duty not to render any person stateless. Um, and that's something that is agreed upon um, in international law. And even if they were to deprive someone of their nationality, they should um, do so in accordance with international law. So even um, in the, the severe cases, if you were to deprive someone from their nationality, you should still try not to um, leave them stateless. So you should prevent um, and prohibit statelessness because this is something that international law asks the states to do. So basically, the deprivation of nationality, I think it must be subject to certain rules and laws, and the person concerned has the right to appeal. And to appeal to that decision in terms of revoking nationality, you should have clear idea of how the case is going and not like do it in the dark, as in like, oh, you can't check this file because it's a national security thing, so we can't give you access to it. If someone is losing their nationality, the bare minimum is to defend their rights to keep that nationality. So I think the increase in cases of statelessness due to deprivation of nationality as a national security measure has not been accompanied by automatic safeguards against the statelessness. And that's what we should focus on is that in the current uh, nation state system, yes, national security is important and deprivation of nationality is being used as a national security measure. But is deprivation of nationality the only way to protect national security? I doubt it. That, again, links very well back to the deprivation of citizenship um, provision in the UK's current laws. And that is really concerning, especially given all that you've said, what they're trying to do. So thank you so much again uh, for raising this this issue and raising this attention to this issue, because I think it's really, really important and it'll be relevant for people thinking about that concept and that issue as well at the moment. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you actually think would help in terms of international law, are we are we talking about then relying more on international human rights standards to prevent uh, the deprivation of nationality? Yeah, I would say so, because the right to nationality is um, a human right. So um, I would focus on international human rights standards and um, what international human rights law says about that, because um, as a human beings, um, we all have their like... The fact that we still have nation state system um, makes us forced kind of to um, follow the rules that come with it. So um, in order to understand how the right to nationality works, we should understand how nation state um, system works in the first place. And we should also understand that nation state systems system in general um, is ruled and governed by international law. The thing is, um, international law is not being implemented, and that's the real issue, because in theory, everything is there. In practice, we are missing a lot of measures and a lot of practices that would protect the human beings. Um, so um, if we limit the power of states, and if we give more space to international law and the international community to actually intervene and protect um, the human rights of individuals, then we would um, have less cases of statelessness and um, we would get the cosmopolitan world that we talk about right now. 
it's very important to also think whether do we need nation state system do we need governments and uh, the form of nation states to govern to govern human beings or do we need a cosmopolitan world where everyone has access to their rights um, by virtue of being a human being um, and then how that works in general. And I really don't have an answer for that. I keep thinking about it. And um, yes, I'm very critical of the nation state system, but I also think of like alternatives today and what can we do to better it or to bring justice to everyone around the world. When you, when you talk about these things, an alternative solution, um, it reminds me of when we were children and we were taught about, you know, the Esperanto, the, the, the universal language. Do we, do we really need nationality or can we all be one big, happy nationality? Do we, do we really need that? Do we need co concepts of borders? I mean, I might, I might sound a little bit out there, but I think it's something to really think about. We were, we're united as humans, um, Why do we highlight so much our differences and not our commonalities? And um, I think although it, it it sounds very new age of me to say that as a lawyer, I think the law maybe should should maybe reflect on this a little bit further. So I uh, I really um, I think it's an interesting point that you're making here. Yeah, honestly, because I always think of the um, rule of borders and constructing nation states, and um, it just makes me wonder. A random person, let's talk about the Middle East, for example, Sykes-Picot, a French and a British person just drew the lines and then they determined, oh, you belong to this country and you belong to this country, when in fact we all were one. So do we really need to have all of these complications to live our lives and like be functioning as a human beings easily around the world. So um, because the nation state system still exists until today, it makes me question a lot of things. Um, but this universal language is a very valid point that I actually think about all the time, to be honest. Thank you so much, Shad. I think it's so interesting for us to have these conversations. And I wondered if you could maybe, um, and I would certainly be interested in in a bit more of a case study. And I wondered if we could ask you to speak about your own um, your own maybe experience or your own home home nation of Palestine and that that case study. Yes. Okay. So um, Palestine, I I always say it's the most complicated yet interested interesting um, case when it comes to statelessness because um, it combines de facto stateless, de jure stateless, refugees and all of these things. So basically when we first talk about Palestine usually people think of refugeehood rather than statelessness um, because um, with all the um, massive displacement that happened back in 1948 and with Palestinians being forcibly displaced from their own homelands, um, they became refugees. However, they are not um, recognized as refugees um, under international law and they're not protected by the UNHCR because there is the UNRWA, which is the body that deals with um, refugees or Palestine refugees, which is out of the scope of this conversation, but it's a very interesting point to make because usually we talk about Palestinians as refugees, but I see Palestinians as both refugees and stateless because they don't fit into the definition of either one of these two. Because if we go back to the definition of stateless people, it says a national someone who is not recognized as a national by any uh, by any state under the operation of its law. And Palestine until today is not recognized as a state as by the international community. It's recognized as an observer state, member state in the UN. So it's not a full state as per the definition of what a state is. And Palestinians are 
categorized kind of and like into four categories that divide divided into four categories um i would say palestinians were displaced in 1948 who today live in different parts of the world um whether in refugee camps in the levant area inside palestine as well and diaspora could be in europe the states um canada everywhere some of them got naturalized therefore they're not stateless anymore um they are nationals of the countries they were naturalized and some of them currently hold the refugee card um, by the UNRWA, which means they're not seen as stateless or refugees, but they have these documents that say Palestine refugee. So they're not protected under refugee law or under statelessness law. So they are a complicated case as well. And then there are Palestinians who um, live in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, which are um, two areas under the authority, under the rule of the Palestinian authority, sorry. And in order to get documents from the Palestinian authority or like Palestinian documents in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, Israel has to um, give its approval on that. So the Palestinian Authority can't really give documents unless Israel approves on that. And to me, these two groups are de facto stateless because the Palestinian Authority until today does not have nationality laws. So they don't really define who a Palestinian is and who a Palestinian isn't. And this is mainly because of the 1948 refugees um, around the world, because if they get to define who a Palestinian is, they should be taken into account the right to return and to protect that right as well. They have to be very careful with defining um, nationality laws or Palestinian nationality laws. So Palestinians in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip could be seen as de facto stateless. And then you have the, um, I see them as the most complicated, are the Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem, like myself. So I am Palestinian and I identify myself as Palestinian. I have a refugee card because obviously my grandparents were displaced from Ashkelon in 1948. And I have that. And then being born and raised in Jerusalem as a Palestinian, I get a Israeli residency, which is subject to revocation. So I have to, um, they have a policy called center of life. So I have to prove that my center of life is in Jerusalem in order not to lose that residency. Because if I lose my residency, I literally have nowhere to go to because Jerusalem is home and Palestine is home. So I, I, I don't identify myself with any place but there. So I have to prove that my center of life is in Jerusalem in order to keep my Israeli residency. And that residency is also renewable. So I have to renew it every um, 10 years. But if I uh, don't live in Jerusalem for a certain um, period and I don't prove that I was away for studying, for example, then I would um, lose my residency in Jerusalem. And we have um, temporary Jordanian passport, which is basically a travel document that all Palestinians in East Jerusalem get. And it's a Jordanian travel document. We're not considered as Jordanian citizens. Um, yet, when, when when we apply to like different visa forms or anything, we we say Jordanian because if you put um, Palestine, they would like reject it because oh, you're not Palestinian, and this is something that I always face, and I've been applying for visas for the, oh, as for as long as I remember, ever since I was fourteen years old, I apply for um, different visa forms. And every time when they ask about my nationality, I just like get stuck because I really don't know what to say because I am Palestinian, but there is no single document that proves that I am Palestinian. 
Shad, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. This is uh, something if we're privileged enough to be so so distant from, yet we should be so aware of this. This is so important, crucial. And I really hope that our listeners appreciate it as much as we do. My question for you, because of someone that's not so familiar with with all of what you're going through, is that you're saying when they're asking about your nationality, obviously um, you're Palestinian, but um, when they ask about your citizenship, Are you Jordanian? Are you Israeli? Or are you're not? You're Palestinian, obviously. But what do you answer to that? Because you hold travel documents from Jordan. So could you just clarify this? Because it's not as straightforward uh, for somebody that has never uh, been through all all that you've been through. Uh, so thank you again, really, for sharing this. Yeah, thank you, Sabrina, for your question. Just uh, on the side note, I think usually there is a difference, like in in political theory and in law, there is a difference between citizenship and nationality. And I just noticed that I've been using them interchangeably throughout this whole interview. So in political theory, there is a difference. But for now, let's just deal with them as the same thing because this is a whole different discussion. So if they ask about my citizenship or nationality, I don't know what to say to be honest because I really don't have anything. And um, every time I I get into um, at the airport, for example, I give them first my Jordanian travel document because that's where my visa is. But then if I'm going back to Palestine or historic Palestine, current day Israel, I have to um, give them my residency, which is a different um, travel document, passport kind of. So I give them both documents and they keep looking at them like strangely, you know, what is this? Like, we don't really understand what is going on. Who are you? And I remember the last time I was coming into London, Literally, the police officer was like, who are you? Like, I don't understand. What is this? Why do you have two documents? As if I was too privileged to have dual nationality. That's what they think. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it. I am not a national, neither of Jordan nor of Israel. I am Palestinian and this is how it works. So, um, yeah, every time I apply for a visa, I actually get scared. It might get rejected because of this um, simple question, because I don't know how to answer it. And I think that we really need to make this such a big issue, be much more aware of it. So again, just to absolutely echo Sabrina's thanks, Shad, it's so good to hear and to raise awareness of this issue. Thank you so much for sharing all of these really important experiences on the podcast today. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you so much for um, giving me the space to talk about it because, um, yeah, I don't think a lot of a lot of people understand um, the status of Palestinians worldwide. To be honest, um, they always like just think of the um, case of Palestinians of um, settler colonialism or occupation or all of these things, but they never really um, try to understand the legal challenges that Palestinians go through. And I think it's a very um, interesting case to study to be honest it's certainly interesting and and fundamental i think now it's it's crucial that we address it would you have other case studies equally as important i'm sure to share with us to 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 understand the the, the challenges uh, that might be I, i guess palestine is a very very complex case you've highlighted it very clearly um any other examples um yeah there are like plenty of um, examples around the world of stateless people. We can. One of the examples that some might be familiar with is the um, Rohingya Muslims who fled from um, Bangladesh, didn't recognize them as a state, as um, citizens, and then um, Rohingya refused to recognize them as um, citizens as well. So they left the stateless, and that's involuntarily, involuntary loss of um, nationality because they're not recognized as a stateless, uh, as citizens anywhere, um, yet they do claim that they are um citizens 
And then another thing that I, another case that I can think of is the South Sudan and Sudan after the succession of the, the secession, sorry, of um, South Sudan and Sudan. Um, there, um, Sudan put some laws that um, revoke nationality of those who um, live in South Sudan and vice versa. So it was involuntary loss of nationality because you might lose your citizenship just because you live in a certain territory when it was one country and then overnight they break up. So you might just lose that because without even recognizing that you are being left stateless because the law says so. So they just um, places... Uh, they just place laws, um, new laws, without even notifying people about it. Um, and this is a very um, important point to make, is that um, secessionist entities or states that come out of secession or secession or breakup, they usually don't have enough time to ratify international conventions that prevent statelessness, and they don't have enough time to study nationality laws in depth so they would prevent um statelessness and this is one of the main causes of statelessness is that through secession or succession a lot of people lose their citizenship because or nationality because overnight they just find themselves living in a new country not understanding who they are where they are what rights they are entitled to and which country is responsible for their protection fascinating I guess this brings us to our last question. I cannot uh, believe it um, uh, because time has flown by. It's been so interesting. Um, So we ask all of our guests um, to answer another complex question at the end. We like to to grill them at the beginning and the end. So according to you, does context matter? And how would you define law in context? Um, yes, I think that context does surely matter because law should be read in a context that allows for um, social and progressive change, to be honest, because as I said, it has a cultural um, aspect and there is like um, social organization to it. So I think we should look at law and use it as a tool to better understand our surroundings and realities. Law should actually, and law in context should um, reflect our realities because this is a system that we are living in and this is something that we always believe in and this is something that we fight for as well because I believe if through law we can get justice and equality and democracy and all of these values that we believe in and we fight for despite all what law does to us I still think that it's very important and law in context in specific should reflect our realities and experiences to avoid all the trauma that people go through or necessary reasons really what a lovely positive note to end on shad i think it's really great to hear that you know you have such faith in the law i think that we can all certainly have more faith in the law especially if it's in context and i think that that's the most important thing it just leaves us to thank you so so much for sharing so much important and valuable knowledge on this very interesting area of statelessness and nationality international law in context and we hope that our listeners really enjoy it and that you enjoyed telling us your story as well thank you very much for having me it was a pleasure to speak to you and i hope the students and everyone who listens to this podcast gets more inspired hopefully and enjoy that thank you You've been listening to the Law and Society podcast brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. We hope you enjoyed it and look forward to you joining us soon for another episode.